Hey guys, welcome back to What Do You Make? This is Morgan here. Uh, just a quick intro to this episode. I recorded this a while ago now. I believe it was 2016 with Tim Page and in my quest to re-produce and re-broadcast. I don't even want to use the word broadcast. So professional. Upload these podcasts up into the world and here's the one that I wanted to do next. Um, it was Tim's birthday the other day. Uh, which was pretty crazy. Um, he, Tim is a, an old friend we met when I lived down the road from him. And he was also an adjunct, adjunct professor at my university photography So when I was doing photography. And so I went to chat with him one day about some stuff. And so this is kind of the third or fourth sort of chat we've actually had um, along these lines. And the second one I think I recorded and so yeah it's an interesting chat we didn't really go into a whole bunch of crazy details about certain things that I think are the perhaps marquee things if you go and read his Wikipedia article um, he was you know severely injured four times um, pronounced dead on arrival once or twice um, had massive neurosurgery uh, and just a whole bunch of crazy stuff. So we didn't really go into that because I felt like that was just... I just asked him, and we actually addressed this in the in the record, is that, um, you know, he was on the... Um, he was on some ABC program, um, you know, a few weeks before we recorded this originally and was asked, you know, three questions. And he said, I was asked three questions and talked for 45 minutes. I said, well, you know, I've asked you one question and we've spoken for 45 minutes here. So, you know, I felt like it was just one of those things where I wanted to open the can and see where we go and it's by no means definitive uh conversation about his career but we just went where we went and i think there's some interesting stuff there so yeah have at this episode with tim page i would love if you reviewed the show and rated and reviewed the show on itunes um tell your friends about this you know there's going to be some new episodes soon i've got a schedule of some people that i want to talk to on this podcast about the things that they make and uh, you know, during COVID, that'll be all online. And at some point, I'll go and make their picture as well in in the real world to add to those episodes. Um, but yeah, that's going to happen, I promise, this time for reals. Uh, so enjoy this episode with Tim Page. And I'll see you later. Hi there, everyone. It's Morgan here. Welcome to What Do You Make, a podcast where I interview people and ask them what they make. And at some point, I take their photo. And today I'm joined by Tim Page, who is a photographer. Tim, hello, welcome to the show. Good morning. Tim, what do you make? What do I make? I make breakfast, always. Not necessarily at the right time of day, but I always make breakfast. I figure that if you're a condemned man to be executed, if you have a decent brekkies, then they can shoot you and at least you die full. And knowing you've got a good day coming up wherever you're going, um, you need a good brekkies to go off. Um, I make less images than I used to. I suppose that's the aging process. I don't 
go out hunting images like I used to go out for a drive to a beach to find an image for the hell of it, me take a walk. Always take the camera with me to shopping, malls, almost in defiance of you should not take pictures in these places. But to me, these are kind of places that need to be documented in a certain sense. Um, I'm still making frames of the military, Australian military, which I've still got a small niche market for with the Australian War Memorial <coughs> and also stock images. Um, I find I get accepted by them because of my veteran status. I mean, I'm talking about the different RARs and regiments and the battalions. Mm. And there's a lot of people there. I mean, there's not a lot anymore. There's still a few older officers and NCOs who are veterans of Vietnam. Obviously, we're thinning out like we're thinning out like water. It's just like somebody said the other day to me, an old mate. It's like a sniper looking for us. There's a sniper out there just taking us out. I mean, of the old Vietnam veteran hacks correspondence, there's been six die this year, and people as famous as Mike Hare who wrote dispatches. Sydney Schoenberg, The Killing Fields. Ba-boom, ba-boom. It's, it's a hard call. Um, I'm not saying you make less when you're older, or you make more cups of tea because your bladder's falling apart. Um, you don't make the same mayhem that you used to. I suppose you do get pissed and fall over when you get drunk. I make more joints, possibly, per DM to keep the kind of balance of... this. The world seems to get, be getting more and more screwed up by the politics and things I can't deal with beyond my control. I didn't vote for this mob, don't get me wrong. Um, how do you still make a difference... Gone are the days where <clears throat> you had a front page on a paper, you had a big spread in a magazine, a big oeuvre. The magazines don't exist. There's no more material for the dunny. A magazine used to sit on the coffee table and migrate to the dunny, so you always had favourite pictures. Yeah, just two <laughs> seconds. You better. Yeah. Sorry. You're right. <laughs> yeah, That's all right. She's upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've listened to plenty of wonderful podcasts where um, uh, where we have interruptions. In fact, uh, one of my favourite ones was where um, Tom Ballard was doing an interview in the only room in the ABC they could find which happened to be Tony Jones's office, and he came in halfway through the interview. I think, I don't know, I mean, who, who knows what, last, when, when was it, last Friday, I did ABC Radio, Radio National, The Conversation. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've never done a radio show, I've done hundreds in different parts of the world. 
where they spent so much time in preparation. We taped two phone calls an hour and a half to start with. And I was in the studio for an hour and 45. That's to make it. It's an hour-long program. I think so. I don't know how long. It, is it 45 minutes or an hour? I don't know. But it was a bit like doing hard talk for the BBC, which was... I mean, I sat there in the BBC studios and was kind of, was kind of a bit gobsmacked by a... The guy asked me three questions, and I went for 45 minutes. So it was kind of... <laughs> well, the idea with this show is that I ask you, there's only one that I'm guaranteed. Everything else is... What do I make? What happens? What do I make? <laughs> what did you? How is it different now? How is it? How has it changed for you? Or do you want to start out where? I mean, where did it all? Where did it all begin? Why did you start making pictures in the first place? I suppose because I had a camera. Um, why did you have a camera? Because my dad gave me one. It's always dad's fault. No, no, not at all. I don't. I mean, it's. I, I can't blame him at all. I think it's. I mean, I would never have found it by myself. You can't say that because you can't look back on history and say something would have. Would, you can't use the word if. It doesn't work, the word if. You start with if, you're fucked. You basically, you're driving backwards if you say if. If my mum hadn't met my dad, hello, well, I mean, you know, keep on going. You know, if we hadn't had the Crusades, the Pope wouldn't have to say sorry. I mean, who cares? It gets ridiculous if... Once the camera, a, a proper camera, was in my hand, something was, I'm talking about 35 mils, was when I was 13, 14. I never had enough money to, to exploit it. I mean, times in the 50s were completely, in the 1950s were completely different from times now. There was no credit, there was no... We could hardly find anything. I mean, you know, there wasn't products about. There was still rationing in the UK. I mean, not on everything, but it was still rationing. I mean, the availability of stuff. I mean, China wasn't busy yet. I mean, I mean, I mean, I mean the first Hondas hadn't hit the streets. It was that early. I mean, it's hard to imagine a world without Hondas. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just weird. Um, once I'd got it and I shot film odd rolls of it as I progressed to the east overland except for a few odd snaps all that film's lost the actual negatives I mean I replayed, I sold the camera eventually in India to pay for food and petrol got another camera in Burma and took pictures of I wish the hell I had the nerve early Korean state and catching uh, independent rebels up in the north of Burma, up on the Stillwell Road. That was just back in 63. And then the camera and all the film was nicked in, a, in the Taisong Greek brothel opposite the main railway station in Bangkok. I mean, this is when Bangkok was hardly um, on the map as a tourist place. Uh, there was six or seven of us all living in one room, and it, I mean, stuff disappeared. I mean, that was it. <laughs> and I didn't get another. I <coughs> didn't get another. I mean, it's a long story. That I mean, the Tai Song is still there. 
I mean, I don't think it's been schmicked up. It's been schmicked up, but I don't know if it's still as licentious as it used to be. Um, then I got to Laos. I didn't have a camera. And then I made enough, a little bit of money working when I was working for USAID and bought a, <clears throat> a 35 mil Yashica semi-automatic thing and took that drove to Anchor Watt from Laos shot some incredible black and white I just shot black and white and realised and started to carry the camera at work when I was working for USA taking pictures in the field and temples and probably no more than two rolls of, you know, a week or something my mate who I was rooming with started stringing for UPI United Press the war escalated he was asked to go to Tokyo to become a fully fledged correspondent my dibs for the job of six weeks of being stand in for my mate was a Pentax and $110. In the absence, when, in his absence, when he'd been away for the six, seven weeks, I'd photographed, I'd done little stories on the, 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 the edge of the plain, uh, plain of jars where there was fighting with the Patit Lao. The Lao Air Force had blown itself up at Wat Thai Airport. There was a Mayo New Year, da-da. So I wrote these little stories, you got 10 cents a word, so, and you got $10 for the picture. So I, I filed, I mean, I, that was my first big filing. Martin was back for a month, and there was an attempted coup, which was the army against the paramilitary, the police, and the, I guess they were fighting over who got the opium traffic and the smack traffic, and the USAID money. Vientiane was cut off from the rest of the world. No communications, the PTT, the post office, was all shot up. Everybody was co-filing on a, a joint line out of the U.S. Embassy on the USIS line. So every day Martin wrote a story and I rode around town on my, my British scrambler taking pictures of rebels and shot up this and a few bodies. They didn't seem to be shooting at me. It was like, it was like ride around town and, you know, I had long hair and I was white. I mean, I was nothing to do with the coup. I didn't look like a spook. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, no, I, I no way. <laughs> no, but I didn't, I didn't look like a, you know, a, a guy working for Air America. I didn't have a crew cut. I didn't have the button down. I didn't have that look. Um, anyway, I was probably blowing a, blowing a spliff at the same time. Uh, and the Lao were hip to that. And every day we processed the film across the street from the Constellation Hotel. And I took the film and Martin's story and rode through the army and the rebel lines I mean, no problem at all, right? I'm just rode straight up, straight through them most of the time, and got to the place about 25 clicks out of town where you can get a dugout boat, or a, and we weren't there weren't the fast tail boats then. Um, across to Thailand, across to Nongkai, 
from Nunkai. It was about a, oh, an hour ride to the U.S. Air Force Base at Udorn. I arrived on my British scrambler bike. Who the fuck are you? You know, I mean, all these guys really, you know, like, you know, schmutty and like stones and just, you know, like, I, I need to use your telephone line. What do you mean you need to use the telephone line? I've got a call Bangkok, I've just come from Laos. Just a minute. You know, two minutes later, there was, you know, a, quite a senior officer and a spook, you know, and, come in, are you hungry? You know, take me into the mess. Big burger, like food, da 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 da. Need to get this film to UPI in Bangkok. Here's the story. Tell us what's happening. First person we know, you know, just come out of the country. And I did this twice. You know, because it, and then it, then it opened up, and the whole of <clears throat> the Asian media flocked in for its annual Vientiane look at thing. And the bureau chief from Saigon came in and left after a day, two days. And then I got a telex saying, hey, kid, hey, kid, would you accept <coughs> staff position, UPI, photographer, Saigon? I've still got the cable somewhere. $90 a week, four months probation, da-da-da-da-da. I was on a plane within 10 days. I mean, it was an offer you couldn't refuse. I mean, there was no way you could refuse. Well, I mean, I'd been fired or let go by USA because I'd started to work as a, in the media. And my, my buddy Martin, who was in Mughal, had been, you can't, have, you can't be in the media and working for the US government. It's, it's not compatible. And so literally I was, I was in Vietnam within two weeks of having my first cover. I mean, it was like it was splashed. Film come I mean, somewhere. There's, I can't there's, I don't know where Mal could find it for you. Um, carried out by Tim Page on motorcycle. But I mean, it was so it made like a big story, a big splash story, which was way over the top for what it actually was. <laughs> way over the top. One bloke on a scrambler. <laughs> you know, I mean, okay. I mean, there was, I suppose, a point where it not really because. I'd been in Laos for 18 months, 19 months, 20 months, whatever. And the Lao, you know, I'd been up to the front lines. The Lao aren't big at killing each other. They've never been, you know, even in pitched, roaring coups and battles, there's only like half a dozen dead. You know, they don't try to kill each other. They prefer to run. It's 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 much more Buddhist. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, it, it saves having to kill people. Um, no, I'm not saying it doesn't get vicious. It's, don't get me wrong, but they, I didn't feel that like, you know, riding around or getting off, parking the bike, and going over and taking pictures of a bunch of Looney Tunes on the back of a tank firing at a, a post office. You know, even then I wandered round the back of the post office and got some pictures of them firing. But they weren't shooting at me. I guess I could have got killed accidentally. But you didn't think that way. I mean, you, you kind of understood that the Lao weren't out to get you, I suppose. I mean, it's, it's a long time ago. I mean, they've, obviously they've changed since then. I mean, the Laos have become radically different. I mean, it's 
it's not saying it's a very stringent communist state. I mean, it's kind of a bit lax. <laughs> mm. And so from there, what was the what was the trajectory? I mean, was it onwards and upwards, or was there just? I mean, I know there's well, there's I mean, a was, lot of big downs. I but didn't didn't last long at UPI. The guy who came in to run the bureau was oh, there was no sense. He didn't go in the field. His wife did. And we went on to shoot 55 Time magazine covers and become a champion of the White House and all that good stuff. But that's okay. I mean, he's he's not well and he lives in Washington, so... I live in Australia and I'm also probably not that well either, but it's... You know, <laughs> At least you're here. At least I'm here and the first time I arrived in New York, I mean, he fired me for not going in the fields enough, trashing equipment in the field smoking dope in the office. And the first time I got to New York in 67, he gave me a call and said, hey man, can you get me a, can you get me a quarter? You know, he wanted me to score for him. I'm a nice enough bloke, but just a fool. As soon as he came in, he lost Henri Huet. I mean, Henri was making, as when he was my bureau chief, he was making 80 a week, and he'd been there since 1954. And I'm making 90 a week, and I've, had a camera, a, decent, I mean, a Pentax camera, for precisely six weeks. <laughs> you know, I mean, and I haven't. I mean, I'm, a, I'm supposed to go in the darkroom and process film, and I haven't got a dicky bird of a clue. You go out, shoot this stuff, come back, go in the darkroom, which is the size of this table plus a shower stall. I mean, the enlarger was on the loo. I mean, the trays were on the sink. You know, it was, I mean, it was in the film hanging up in the in the in the shower and then make a print and then do a caption and make it on a little piece of ticker tape sticky then take the wet print to the radio station and transmit it and I'd never done any of that in my life so I mean <laughs> I sub- I, sub- but I was lucky because Henri had incredible patience I suppose he was happy to have somebody else who he could talk to in French and English at a time when, this is February 65, the war was starting to go feral. I say feral. I mean, it, were, it, were, it was already feral. But. No, all wars were feral, sorry, but it was starting to... The civilian government of the South changed five times in three months, whatever it was. Every time crack South Vietnamese, Arvin units would get in the field, they were getting hit by larger and larger organised Viet Cong battalions, not yet North Vietnamese. They were taking devastating losses out in the sticks, out in the districts and the provinces. The infrastructure was getting assassinated, the school teachers, the village leaders. I mean, everybody who represented government was getting targeted. You couldn't travel the roads. Or you could, but it was dodgy. The Tonkin Gulf incident happened. Two American installations had been badly hit. First bombings of the North had happened. And they were about to commit American troops, even the first ground troops, the first Marines. So you were about to have a first massive surge. Invasion. I mean, if you look at it from the Marine point of view, I mean, they came across the beaches and all that nonsense. And the AP had just brought in 
as a staff photographer to work with Horse Farce. And they had you know, a few local Vietnamese stringers. They just brought in Eddie Adams. So poor UPI who doesn't pay any fucking money down the street has got Horse Farce and Eddie Adams. Eddie had just won the World Press Award for that picture of JJ saluting at the cask in Arlington, the graveside of JFK. You know, and Jackie's holding the flag, that famous picture. Been a Marine in Korea, and I'm supposed to be Eddie's opposition. I can't even process a fucking roll of film. <laughs> It'd make me laugh. <laughs> It was just. But he was really generous and kind of, you know, I was just told, go where he goes. You don't let Eddie out of your sight. He knows more about photography than you ever learn. Just shadow him. And he's got this, you know, 20-year-old kid traipsing around. And wherever he goes, he's got me, like, on his on his backside. Okay, I've got my own, you know, my own contacts and stuff. But I figure, I mean, as soon as the Marines land, I can't keep up with Eddie. Because he's, he's an ex-Marine, so they were. And it was... It was tough. But you learn to make pictures. I mean, you either make a pitch, make good pictures, I suppose, or you lose your job. I didn't lose the job because I didn't make good pictures. I mean, I did. Well, maybe they they didn't like them, but they got good play. That wasn't, you know. I, I mean, I got. I didn't get hero grams, but I. I mean, I got compliments. And obviously you would have got rockets from New York if the picture pictures hadn't been, unquote, good enough. And I suppose the proof of that pudding was as soon as UPI fired me, I went to work for Parry Match and tried to think of, you know, places to go outside of, to, to earn a freelance living. And within weeks I was selling pictures to AP I mean, obviously, you knew the opposition. I mean, Henri had moved across. Um, and I, I think I actually chose to resign, so I got two weeks, you know, free pay. Um, I had no idea what was going to happen. It was a very strange thing. You lost your job in a war. You'd been fired. Well, I've been fired. Okay, that's cool. It's actually no skin off your teeth, actually, with, with, with the UPI. I mean, if you haven't been fired by UPI, it's, well, it doesn't exist anymore, so you can't really make the analogy, but... <laughs> but there was something attractive. Something attractive? No, it, it's... We can break that. You make... You make I, yeah, I suppose I just keep talking... You're making, you're making, you're making interesting images. I mean, you, you wake up to the fact that you're, you're witnessing shit that nobody witnesses. I mean, having said that, the second book I ever bought was Images of War by Kappa. Photo book, excuse me. First one was Family of Man. And the third was Ernst Haas's creation. Excuse. You're making images which... 
this crazy subjunct competitive way because you're seeing pictures by your peers of the profane and the horrific and the worst and all that shit. And you're trying to make a better image because you've been imbued with this thing about play. What happens to your image when it goes over the wire? Most of the images going over the American AP or UPI wires were destined for AM or PM papers, coast to coast. So you've got three time zones, but they're, they're publishing twice a day. And so your play figures on how you're doing it you're against the AP or UPI, like how many papers you're running front page on, is you'd get every week a play list, big, long, like a telex thing, which shows you the play across the nation every day. I mean, and obviously, there was overseas sales. They had, you know, offices everywhere, but it wasn't the same as it was. America was the base client. And you always had to, everybody, every time you, you took a picture of a fucking Marine or an advisor, hometown, name, hometown, age. Because they could sell it to the local media, I mean, to the, the Kansas City blurb or whatever, or the Topeka whinge or whatever it was called. I mean, you had, to, and you literally thought about your AMs and PMs and how could you get your film from middle of the shit has hit the fan which is it might only be 15 clicks from an airbase but how are you going to get the 15 clicks to get that film to a plane or yourself with the film to get on a plane to get to Saigon to process the film or if it's colour film to ship the bloody film to New York okay later you can process colour but that's a story Initially, it was black and white. There was no. You could process in Da Nang, up at the north of the country. You could process at a wedding parlour, you know, in a small you know, country town. But is it? Then you still got to get the negs down there. I mean, there was no. There was none of the devices. I mean, I look at. I mean, how I take a picture today. No, I don't do it. I don't have a. I don't have a smartphone. I don't have a device. I can get rid of the picture. I mean, if I had one, I mean, it, it confounds me to be quite honest. I don't know if I want it that instant. And I, I mean, and again, I think, I think it's everybody I seem to teach and talk to. How many people actually look, download, and edit what the hell they've shot? I mean, if I go, if I had a hundred people out there in an audience, how many of you have got a smartphone? Okay, ninety people's hands go up. All right, seventy-five. Let's be honest, seventy-five. Okay, how many of you download your pictures? Six. Okay, of you six, how many edit those pictures? Okay, of you six, how many people actually make a print? 
I mean, I was talking to Chris Reed of Blanco Negro the other day. And he was saying, once you've got to go back to you, Tim, now you're back on film, if you go through your, um, your contact sheets, you take your China graph, do that, and you take the disc which you've had made at the same time that you've had the next process, I mean, the film process, excuse me, Exactly, because it, when it comes out of the process, it's clean as, it's clean as a whistle. It's, it's as clean as you can get it. Have it scanned at TIFF. Doesn't cost that much. It's going to cost you more time to do it. And they've got a machine that does it automatically. At least you hope they have. Normally, it's getting rarer, but that, you know, stay with it. Stay with eventuality. And then from that, you go down to, I don't care, to Orifice Works or take it to, you know, if you've got a, a guy who's still doing proper prints and get two or three made from each roll of film. Put it into a binder. Put the negs stapled to the contact sheet, excuse me, in another binder. And you've actually got a system that works. And you don't have to sit in front of the fucking machine. It actually just liberates, in a sense. I'm not saying it's a bit, a bit over the top. It makes life actually much easier. Okay, you've still got to, you've still got to basically use digital for low-light low circumstances. I mean... I mean, once you've discovered you can use... I can shoot at 6,000 ASA, I can shoot at concert and get just incredible stuff. You know, which I can never do before. Okay, I'm sold. Or I can shoot, you know, verite images, like, you know, in virtual dark, you know, in wherever you want. I mean, as you... I was doing a lot of stage stuff for the, you know, for the powerhouse and what have you. They don't seem to want me to do it anymore. Actually, they get it done for nothing by people who want want just to do it for nothing. They don't want to pay, a, you know, somebody professionally five hundred bucks to shoot it. Well, no, excuse me, I can't do it then. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, I mean, there's just the difference. You know, it's, and then people realise that, oh, well, we had a friend do the wedding. Or, you know, they realise that they've had somebody, you know, amateur shoot, whatever it was. And it's no good, there's nothing there. Oh, sorry, there is something there, but there's nothing memorable. There's nothing... There's, there's nothing about the images which make you twitch or get your nipples all teased. It's just nothing goes on. And I think therein lies the dilemma of all of this stuff. Also, with the digital, how much do you save? Whereas if I shoot what you're shooting at the moment, I got a roll of film. It sounds like a camera. It sounds like a camera. I miss using mine. I sold it. What? You sold your Leica? Yeah. Silly man. Yeah, very silly. Stupid man. thing to do. I got a call maybe 10 years ago, 12, from Adam Ferguson, who I'd taken overseas, as you know, calling me from Delhi totally fucking broke desperate 
He said, I'm going to sell my Leica. I said, Adam, if you need the money that badly, I'll lend you the money you get from your Leica. I said, never sell your Leica. He didn't. When he was doing Afghan, the same time I was there for the UN, he came round to my room with a bottle of scotch to show me his first-time essay he won all the prizes for. And he said, thank you for, not, for telling me not to sell it. Because he'd gone on and used it. Never sell your Leica. What are you passionate about, Tim? I suppose keeping a quality of life that makes the happy column more full than the unhappy column. I suppose I'm still passionate about travel. And I mean that in the sense of be it a job job, I mean a, a gig, or be going someplace because it's there to be gone to. I suppose I'm, I'm passionate about the things I'm trying to, 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 to not make, but trying to put together books. I mean, it's a bit of an obsolete market, I suppose. It's kind of coming at it from a Jurassic Park sense. Um, I can't get passionate about politics and stuff. It's just so corrupt. I suppose I'm passionate about propagating sanity and a sane way of looking at things, a rational way, maybe it's a better way of putting it, more pragmatism than argument. I'm enjoying, I don't call it a passion, reading more, because even though I find writing akin to going to the dentist and the shrink at the same time. I enjoy, I feel that <clears throat> I've got things I can say which don't necessarily just come out with an image. Um, yeah, you can say a lot with an image about something. And it also, obviously... It exposes part of yourself too. At the same time, you put yourself into it. One complements the other. I like the idea of a sunny veranda and a writing desk and the ability to sit there and I'm not saying make a living at it. I mean, this is part of the problem. Of I thought we'd be sitting out on the veranda this afternoon, to be honest, but it seems like it doesn't matter no, too it's, much. It's, 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 it's not quite the kind of... I, I don't know who's been looking at burbs. I grew up in a burb, in the burb of London, and it, it, to me it's, it's that little boxes syndrome, that little mind syndrome, that the unwashed who don't seem to get the political concepts and they're, I mean, they're snowed under I mean, they're propagandised I, mean, it's, it's, I mean, and somehow I stand outside of that and maybe as a I suppose I'm becoming more passionate about not about anti-war because I realise you can't stop all wars you can't beat the military industrial complex 
can't take that apart. It's not going to happen. Not in my lifetime. Um, I'm passionate about the concept of clearing the damage left by wars, demining, UXB, that kind of nonsense. I suppose the issues that affected me, you know, mines and booby traps and being soaked in Asian orange, and so trying to do a little bit to expose issues that most people drive past. They don't even see the billboard. Often there's no billboard. Somebody's got to bring, shall we say, the residues and the malfeasances we've created to public attention. Maybe that's a sort of a job that was a documenter for. Um, but in the age of smartphones, maybe what I can do is is lend a bit of a voice because I've got a bit a louder voice within society. So speak up about things that are issues that need to be addressed. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's pointless me kind of going up against Alan Jones on climate change or something. I'm, I'm not going to go there. Although he's actually, I mean, I've actually, I was actually surprised. I went and photographed him with a coal seam gas thing out in the Lockyer, where he comes from. And I've never heard him rant so much against the government and against the system and you know, what we what how we're misusing the water and I mean the whole nine yards. It's amazing when someone's so polarizing that you constantly revile and see words that they put out in the in the world and revile the words. So, and every now and then there's this little nugget of, of something that you align with that comes from them. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, you know, but I thought I'd I'd you know, emigrated to a a country that, you know, still had a larrikin spirit and it's all being dampened down. I'm 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 upset maybe that what used to be the Australian spirit is being gradually eroded by mundanity where people don't care too really too much what goes on politically above them. They don't realise how they're being manipulated. They don't seem to realise that they've been converted away from any form of spirituality into visiting a shopping mall for satisfaction. And I go, am I passionate about this? Not so much passionate. I'm concerned because there's a lot of similar voices. But disappointingly here, we have little place to put that voice. Okay, so I know there's social media, and I know there's lots of spin, but it's there's no media, there's no television. It involves people actually getting out on the street and doing something about it. I ask how. We know that at the end of the day, if you resort to forms, different forms of... Violence, you will get suppressed because that's the way society has built itself. I mean, where my, my partner's sister lives down in Bellingham, 
They're now logging this forest, which is the watershed between two major rivers, and destroying all this habitat. And it's, it, was, it was a plantation, but it hasn't been harvested for so long. It's not a plantation. And they're trashing a beautiful, as Salgado would say in his, in his writings, a lung, a pure lung you know, of, of, of the central coast. You don't destroy forests, not in this country, with gagging for water. We're gagging for, for, for coverage of, our, of, of basically very poor soil. You don't get rid of trees. It's 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 not logical. Yet, how do you stop? How do you make the people who make the decisions take notice and correct a wrong decision? You can't correct a wrong decision when it's a forest; it's gone. And you're looking at three hundred year old trees have gone. They've gone. They don't grow. You, and then you spray the whole thing with Agent Orange so the lantana doesn't come back and plant something to make pallets. Hello? We can make pallets out of recyclable material, out of plastic. Out of chips, out of uh, rubbish. You can make pallets. You know, I mean, we're not thinking. Is that passion? No, it's not passion, it's concern. It's that wisdom that maybe you get from getting too old. I say too old. You've been around the circuit a few times and you've seen how we fucked up. You fucked up. I fucked up. Bad. I mean, we all made horrendous mistakes. It's how to recognize them and then do something mindful with it. And I think at that point, we've lost the plot. I mean, it's just... I, mean, I look at Brexit, I look at Trump, I look at, I look at the nonsense. The fools in Canberra, fools. Immigration policies which need, I mean, seriously thinking. I mean, do we have a problem when all those Hungarians came after the Hungarian Revolution and built the Snowy River Project? No. Put the Afghans out in whoop-whoop. Have them build roads. I don't know. I, 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 there's, there's all kinds of solutions. Better than being shot at. Huh? Better than being shot at and blown up. Or putting them in bloody concentration camps in, okay. in a, on, on islands full of bird shit. No, it, it's, we're not thinking. And there's no, I don't see people lined up who can't think, who want to, like, get into politics. To run, I mean, it's gone of the ideals of the 50s and the 60s of if you became a politician, it was there because you did things for the people, not for corporations. And I don't know how you turn that round. So I come up against a blank wall. Okay, so how do I photograph that dilemma? And who's going to publish the essay? Well, that's where I was getting... Where is that now? That that entire that entire system has changed from when you started. I suppose there's still a residue of markets in different necks of the world, North America, Europe, who still want <coughs> quality reportage or documentation, whatever you want to call it. I don't want to call it anymore. Which. 
are used in different ways. They're used digitally, they're used in social media, they're used in all kinds of methods these days. And you've got to trap a niche in a certain sense. It's very, very difficult. When the good stuff does, shall we say, seep out, it does get noticed. You've got to put it on walls. You've got the book business is coming back up. There's there's different ways of looking at it. I suppose you're not hitting the great unwashed. You're hitting the top fifteen, twenty percent, maybe. But these are the people who make the decisions. Unfortunately, fortunately, I don't. I don't it's, it's a long argument that one. Um, but it's. I mean, I look at myself as I'm in a very naff way of being sort of Jurassic Park. And I don't mind that. It's part of the ageing thing if you realise it's all going too fast. It's all, I can't keep up with the technology. It's just beyond me. I just can't keep up. All the amount of information. It's like my mum growing up in the, you know, during the First World War in the 20s and Depression. There was no television, no antibiotics, no anaesthetics, no jet, nothing. I asked her once. I said, "I said, how do planes fly?" Uh, I said, "How do planes fly?" She said, "Petrol, maybe diesel." Yeah, makes sense. You put fuel in the bloody thing. I like the idea of diesel aeroplanes. It was kind of very Russian, very Soviet sort of <laughs> diesel aeroplanes. With <laughs> <laughs> good solid cast iron wings. And then <laughs> the difference is uh, at age, you know, five, I was, I, <laughs> I was reading about Bernoulli's principle. You know, <laughs> times have changed. <laughs> I think we'll wrap it up there. Tim, thank you so much for coming on my podcast. My pleasure, mate. <laughs>